It was, it was pretty amazing. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Um, I'm sure that, that you didn't know that I was going to read. There's four Gospels, you know, it's a chance of one and four, but you picked the one that I was going to read out of. So uh, that is not at all coincidental. Um, y'all probably know Palm Sunday is, is the beginning of what we call Holy Week. Sometimes we call it Passion Week, and that's the last week of Jesus' life before he was crucified. And um, Jesus, he entered Jerusalem for just a few days prior to, to his arrest and his crucifixion, which culminated in his miraculous resurrection the following Sunday. Um, so again, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21, which is where we're going to be reading from this morning. And while the kids are finding the bingo pictures, I want to explain how we're going to proceed today. Because um, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 17. And the first part of this is a very, very familiar passage. We call it the triumphal entry. Um, but one thing that kind of hit me this year when thinking about Palm Sunday is the fact that we almost always talk about the triumphal entry, but there's a lot of other stuff that happened that same day. You know, uh, one thing in particular. And so today we're going to look at Matthew's record of that day, starting in verse 1 of chapter 21 and going through uh, verse 17. Before we do that, I want to explain the title. I want to introduce two aspects of this passage that we're going to be focusing on today. Um, when I say that God chooses the humble, the first thing that pops into a person's mind might be a reference to salvation, but it is a far broader statement than that. One of the few passages in the Old Testament that's quoted more than once in the New Testament is a paraphrase, at least in the epistles, okay, is a paraphrase of Proverbs 3.34. It's stated both in James 4.16, excuse me, 4.6, and in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose God gives special favor to the humble? I mean, it's probably safe to say that pride is a gigantic obstacle that interferes with our relationship with God, and I think he takes great pleasure in providing for those who recognize that they need him. But there's actually a reason that's maybe even more basic than that. I think a reason the Lord appreciates humility is that Christ himself is humble. And when we are humble, we're being like God. We're behaving in his image. And you've probably heard that before, that Christ is humble, that God is humble. In fact, you probably heard it just a few moments ago in the servant or the uh, scripture that was read at the beginning. But it, maybe the shine has rubbed off a little bit. I don't know. But we can agree. I think this is one of the most incredible things about God, that he is humble. You know, our, our, our proof of this is that his humility is perfectly expressed in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life, referred to himself as lowly and humble in heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine, And we see evidence of this all throughout his ministry. Christ was constantly glorifying his Father, and he was putting the needs of others ahead of his own desires. Those are two truly important signs of a humble person because humble people are not, first and foremost, about themselves. But they're about promoting others particularly the Lord. Jesus exemplified this in his willingness to become a human being and to suffer and to die on our behalf. 
So therefore, humility is a vital part of the Christian life. It's vital in our justification because we must recognize our need for God. But in our sanctification, it's vital because His Spirit causes us to conform to His attitudes and behaviors. So we ought to see humility as one of those fruits. And since God desires His people be like Him, his, He is pleased whenever we reflect humility in our lives or any of His characteristics, really. He's pleased to see that. So with this as kind of our bare bones outline, let's pray together, uh, and then we're going to dig into the Word. Father God, I just ask... In the precious name of Jesus, for everyone that's here this morning, for everyone that's listening online, God, that you might produce in us the kind of humility that reflects Jesus Christ. Help us to be good soil so that we receive the seed today and that the word that is planted takes root and bears fruit. And we ask, Father, for all of us that we, are, uh, that we recognize in humility what you want to say to us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, that, that means, um, pretty sure that means eating bread is what Bethphage means. There's a little bit of a, a hum in the speakers. Larry? There's a, there's a little bit of a, an echo, a ring. To the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Now the other Gospels, I think all three, only mention the donkey that Jesus rode. One says it had never been ridden before, but here we see it was such a young donkey that it still needed its mama with it. Okay? Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, friends, according to both Mark and Luke, the disciples did end up being confronted about borrowing the donkey, but it worked out because Jesus said it would work. I don't recommend trying this with a random stranger in a parking lot, okay? <laughs> Give me your keys. The Lord needs it. You know, I don't think that'll work out so well. Uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah 9 9, which Dana read earlier. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, there's some pretty great humility shown in this passage on both sides. And I want to just, first of all, notice this. Jesus is riding on a donkey's colt, okay? He didn't even sit on a full-size donkey, you know, like most of the paintings show. It wasn't even like, like a big donkey. It, it, was, it was so young that no one had ever sat on it before. It was so small that apparently it needed its mother's nearby. It may have still been nursing. And in the movies, you know, and in, in, in art, we always see Jesus, he's, he's head and shoulders above the people, but I submit to you, it's possible this young donkey was so short, he may have been below people's line of sight. Just something to think about. You know, this is not at all what the more traditional Jewish people would have been expecting from their coming Messiah. They would have wanted a, a great big white steed with, 
with his, his armor glistening in the sun, flashing off of the, the sword and spears. And, and that's, that's not what they got, at least not this time around. Anyway, the, the people began throwing their cloaks on the foal's back to form a, makes, a makeshift saddle and, uh, and even tossed them on the road along with palm branches. Now, from an objective standpoint, the palm branches kind of make sense, right? I mean, you, you cut them off a tree, you drape them across the road, it makes a nifty path for the Messiah to walk on. But the cloaks? That means, literally, that some of these people were using one of their most valuable possessions as a red carpet for a beast of burden to walk on. I want you to just think about that. What does that say? You know, these guys didn't have coals. You know, their, their stuff was made by hand. And it was extremely expensive. And yet they threw them on the ground for a donkey to walk on. I mean, these people knew what came out of donkeys, but, but they didn't care. I may have told you about the time I went to go see The Promise. Forgive me if I've already, I know I've said this. Some of you are new. You may not know this story. And I remember when the donkey was walking across with Jesus and all the people are waving the palm fronds, the, the donkey did let one go right there on the stage and just kept walking. And it was funny to see this little kid running around. I was like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> like the, you could tell he was a little bit surprised. These people are putting their most valuable stuff on the ground knowing that this donkey might go to the restroom on it. But that was okay for them because they just wanted to lay something of theirs that was valuable at the feet of Jesus. That's what humble people do. They're not afraid to lay something of value at the feet of Jesus. It didn't bother them to celebrate the Messiah's coming in what we would consider long johns, basically. The tunic was an undergarment. In this moment, these people were full of joy over Jesus. And it seems like that they had pretty much forgotten themselves. And that's a great way to respond to the presence of Christ, don't you think? To forget yourself. As far as we can tell, nobody in that crowd was worried about being judged by anybody else, good or bad. You know, it, it, that's, that's what real humility looks like. So let's keep going. Uh, and the crowds were, that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And it's pretty awesome when we consider what these words and phrases in the shouting actually mean. You know, I think, first of all, when we hear Hosanna, we probably just think of, of a biblical ex exclamation, you know, like hallelujah, something like that, which also has a really cool meaning, by the way. We'll talk about that another day. But, but Hosanna has a really important meaning. Hosanna literally means please save. In other words, save us, please. And then there's the fact that they're referring to him as the son of David, which is absolutely a title for the Messiah who is to come. They were expecting him to be a descendant of David, which Jesus was, both on his mother's side and his stepfather's side, for those of you that didn't know that. Mary's lineage was from the house of David as well as, as Joseph. And so when we consider what the crowd was saying, there, there's no question that these people understood there was, there was a messianic undercurrent to this whole thing. Jesus wasn't just a celebrity. He was their coming king. And they recognized it. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now there's something else interesting, I think, about this. We're going to come back to it shortly. But for now, I'd like to point out that one sign of humility in this passage is that the people in the crowd were quick to unselfconsciously praise. Once again, they didn't seem all that concerned about how they appeared to people who might be watching. And I want to pause and, and, and just talk about this for just a moment. How many of you here in this room, and this, this is for you in your heart, you don't need to raise your hand, I just want you to think about this. How many of you in this room truly feel like you are totally unselfconscious when you praise the Lord? If I'm being totally transparent, I have to admit that there is almost always something that prevents me from feeling totally unselfconscious when I'm praising God. There's this little voice in the back of my mind that says, if you feel led to raise your hands, but you don't do it, then you're not really worshiping. But there's another voice that's saying, but if you raise your hands, you might draw attention to yourself and distract someone else from worshiping. Those two things are always at war. And then uh, sometimes I like to sing the harmony, and apparently I'm a little louder than normal, I guess, Shannon. <laughs> um, but it's, it's one of those things where, like, I wonder if I'm throwing somebody off or, or, you know, or if I'm taking their mind off Christ because I'm singing a harmony part. And maybe that sounds silly, but I, I wrestle with that. Or maybe I want to clap my hands, you know, and, and, and it feels awkward when 95% of us don't clap. But it's, it's actually been more like 85% now. You guys are coming around. Keep it going. Keep it going. But it, it, it's less awkward than it used to be. But if you're wondering why I'm telling you all this, it's basically that you need to know it's not just you. You're not the only one struggling with these things. Your pastor's struggling with these things. I know I'm not alone in this, though. You know, some of you feel this way. You want to be more demonstrative, but, you've, but you're self-conscious about it because you don't want to be a distraction. Look at this crowd in this narrative. They are not concerned about it. Do they look like they're worried about how other people are going to see them? Not at all. They're basically having a parade in their undergarments. I mean, that's amazing. You know, I guess it happens in St. Patrick's Day sometimes, but that's, not, but that's not what we're talking about here. This, why are we so concerned about how we appear to others? And see, it's a difficult balance. I admit that, right? Because we don't want to be a stumbling block for someone else. But sometimes I think we just care a little too much about what other people think, and that's called fear of man. And if every believer could just turn off the fear of man, I think that would be an amazing witness, don't you? I struggle with this. I struggle with it. Anyway, there's another way that humility shows up in this passage, even though it takes a little time to get around to it. I want you to notice, when some people asked who Jesus was, the response was, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Does anybody remember what Nathaniel said to Philip back when he first heard about Jesus in John chapter 1? <laughs> right? For, for those of you that didn't understand that, because it was from my, and for those of you online, um, he says, when, when Philip says, hey, this, we found the, the Messiah, he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? I mean, that was his immediate response. This town did not have a very metropolitan reputation. Okay, it was kind of a, like a, a backwater place, right, part of Israel. So despite being the son of God, 
Jesus came from humble beginnings. And that may not seem very impressive until you realize that Jesus is the only person in history who got to choose where he was raised, where he was born, and who his parents are going to be. Think about it. Remember that God the Son chose to be born to a poor couple from an unremarkable place. They weren't even home when he was born. They didn't even have a crib to put him in, right? So he was laying in a feed trough in a cave. And of course, the crowds, they weren't aware of that part, but we are. We know this. The Lord could have chosen to be born anywhere. He could have been in the finest room of a palace in the holy city, attended by the best physicians, but that's not what he chose. Christ is humble. Let's keep reading. Uh, Palm Sunday wasn't over. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Pretty familiar story, right? Even, even to people who've never read this. A lot of non-Christians are aware of this story, okay? But not everyone knows the reason that Jesus did this, okay? I mean, it sounds a little uncharacteristic of Jesus, right? I mean, this, this is the guy who says... Turn the other cheek and do not resist an evil person. So how does he go into the temple and start upending tables and driving out merchants? Context is always important whenever Jesus speaks or acts. Okay? Always important. In one context, the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling the disciples how to respond if they're being insulted or mistreated. But here... The issue was that dishonest people were using his father's temple as a place to rip off faithful people. Apparently, it was common practice in Jerusalem to use the major feast days as an opportunity to price gouge these pilgrims who come from other places in Israel to, to be, and even cheat them, you know, for them to come. Um, for instance, having an unfair exchange rate for the currency. They'd say, well, you can only do this in you know, a certain... What are you doing? They, uh, they can only... <laughs> Wait, did you have a question? Okay. Um, they can only do this in certain parts of, uh, of, of, of the world. You know, they, they came to Jerusalem and they could... Only, I'm sorry, I, I, got, I lost my train of thought. They could only um, offer their, uh, a certain currency at the temple. And so they would say, well, you can't offer that. So you have to use our currency, so let's do an exchange, and they would give them a terrible rate. They'd rip them off. Or they would go into the temple and they'd, they'd bring a sheep for sacrifice, and the sheep looked really good, right? But then the, uh, the priest might be like, oh, there's something wrong with this sheep. And they'd look at it, you know, like the guy that's buying a used car, um, you know, and they'd be like, they'd find everything they possibly could that's wrong with it, even if it's not really wrong with it, you know? And so the, the priest would do that and be like, you can't offer that. You're going to have to go buy this lamb over here to offer at a way inflated price. So they were just ripping people off. And God absolutely hates dishonesty. He especially hates cheating the poor. Anyway, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So here, Jesus is giving his reasoning for being so zealous in the purging of the temple. It says, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this passage. Let me back up. I'm sorry. I didn't put this in here, but I really want to tell you this. <laughs> Where he's quoting from, when he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he actually doesn't finish that statement. 
and he probably he knew he knew why. But it said, "My house shall be called a da- uh, excuse me, my father's house, my temple shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, for the Gentiles." Do you know that? In the Septuagint, that'd be the word ethnoi for other nations. So here we see Jesus reaching forward, well, reaching backward to point forward and to say one day it's not just going to be you, guys. One day it's going to be everybody who is faithful, who fears God. I think it's awesome. Anyway, so um, he's given his reasoning for being so zealous, you know, by, by trashing the place kind of. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, it says, and he healed them. Now this is really cool, okay? The purpose of the temple under the old covenant was to provide kind of an earthly home base for the presence of God, right? You know, they, they basically made him a throne. They call it the mercy seat. It was on top of the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And that was where people would go to have their sin atoned for and so that they could be made spiritually whole again. So what Jesus is doing here was such a beautiful picture of that spiritual wholeness, but he was doing it in a, in a physical way. He was working it out in a way that people could see with their eyes. So they could actually observe the work of God occurring in people's lives in real time. Blind people are being able to to see. Lame people are being made able to walk. And it really made his enemies mad. We're going to see that in a moment, though. Uh, But right now, please note another sign of Christ's humility. In Scripture, I can't think of a single time Jesus got angry on his own behalf. He certainly got indignant on behalf of others. I think it's important for us to notice the difference here. As he's he's tossing out the unjust merchants, his words reveal that his righteous anger was directed at those who were abusing the temple. As one of the other Gospels points out, it was zeal for his father's house. Now, there's only two other instances in the Gospels that I can recall, okay, So afterwards, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But only two that I can recall where Jesus is specifically said to be angry, and they're both in the book of Mark. One of them is when the Pharisees are watching Jesus. You remember this? To see if he would heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. It says that Jesus looked around at them in anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Before, of course, healing the man, because that's what he does. The other time was when the disciples were trying to keep parents from bringing their little children to Jesus, and it says he was indignant. I mean, can you picture that? Jesus, like, guys, suffer the little children. Don't don't stop them from coming to me, especially these, these precious souls. I mean, what an example that Jesus sets for us, and how far we fall short of it. Friends, pride is easily offended on behalf of itself. Guilty. I'm going to say it again. Pride is easily offended on behalf of itself. A humble person does not fixate on insults to himself, but tends to be more concerned about how others are treated. To be fair, I do think some people will use other people as proxies so that they can get offended on behalf of someone else so that they can feel vindicated in their anger. And we need to be aware of that prideful trap because 
When, when we do that, it, it's still somehow about us. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, uh, like, how dare you do that to my friend, you know, or whatever. We're making it about us. I want you to, I want you to understand this, okay? If I'm going to reflect the character of Christ, I need to be quick to release an offense against me while still being quick to stand up on behalf of someone else who can't stand up for himself. I think that reflects Jesus. We never see him get offended on his own behalf. He was always offended on behalf of his father or of someone else who was being treated unjustly. Does that make sense? Are we? Okay. Track with me. Last paragraph. We're almost done. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children, I love this, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant, same word. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? In other words, how are you letting these people say such things? Now, you got to bear in mind, they are observing the same miraculous healings that were leading these others to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah and to call out to him, please save. They're seeing the same thing. The evidence is staring them in the face, but they just refused to accept it. Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You've prepared, prepared praise? You know, the satirical tone here is pretty intense. Let's think about it. Who's Jesus talking to? <laughs> Who are the people complaining? Think about it. Somebody tell me. Religious leaders, the priests and the scribes, right? And what's he asking them? He basically says, have you never read? I mean, <laughs> these are the Bible experts of their day, okay? And Jesus was basically saying, haven't you read the Bible, right? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. A final point for the crowd that displays some humility on their part is that they were seeing and believing Jesus for who he is. The know-it-alls were too proud. They couldn't believe, they wouldn't believe, or both. But this, this crowd, even children, even little kids knew who Jesus was. Because who can do the things he did? Who could say the things he said? You know, they, they had faith in someone outside of themselves because only humility allows that kind of faith. Pride is rooted in my ability, in my performance, but humility is rooted in God's ability, in Christ's performance. The most Religious people in the day couldn't see past their own nose or their own navel. They were navel-gazing. But for these humble people, these faith-filled people, they could look up. They could see that God was in their midst. And Jesus loved seeing people who recognized him. 
fact, he was so pleased by it that we have a record of him bursting out spontaneously, at least seemingly spontaneously, in praise to his father. You remember from earlier today. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, for this was your gracious will. I think that's, that's what God likes to do. He, he turns worldly paradigms upside down. He shows his greatness through the weak and through the foolish and through the broken, like me, like you. In fact, um, one of the greatest pieces of evidence that we have that God is humble is that he so often uses humble people. He ordains praise from little children. He speaks through reluctant, tongue-tied prophets like Moses. He wins battles with guys who don't know a sword from a stapler like Gideon. You know, he, he loves working through our flaws. You guys have a very flawed preacher, and you are very flawed too. And God is working in us and through us. He chooses us, he uses us, and he loves us. If you're already a believer this morning, then you know these things. But maybe you've kind of forgotten them. Maybe you've gotten to the place where you don't feel like God can use you. Maybe you feel like you're unusable because you're not worthy. Guess what? None of us are. Or maybe you've been spending too much time concerned with your own performance. It's easy to do that sometimes. Some scriptures, we read one in Sunday school this morning. Some scriptures make you a little bit concerned about your performance. But the fact is, our salvation is by grace through faith in Christ's performance. And everything that stems from that is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And we praise God for that. So friend, if you're struggling this morning because you, you go, I, I don't know how to be humble or maybe I'm so far past humble I feel like dirt. Hey, either way, God is there for you.